Good morning, everybody. What an awesome day. I think baptism is one of my very favorite church days of the year. Celebrating together new life in Christ underscores that we are a family, that we weren't born again in order to live individual lives and try to be us against the world, but we were placed in families. And so to celebrate with our families is an amazing thing, and I look forward to doing that here at the culmination of our service. Really appreciate Pastor Daniel and leading us in prayer uh, for Afghanistan. And, you know, when you think about what a church is and what a church service is, it's tempting to want to make it into a, a, a show or a production that follows an emotional tenor. And you're like, well, in that case, on a day that we're celebrating and there's balloons and like water-colored cupcakes in the lobby, it's kind of a downer to talk about, you know, um, humanitarian crises and atrocities on the other side of the world. But the reality is this is what we're called to be, to live in those real spaces. And I'm so grateful to be a part of a church that's so attentive uh, to and cares so much for God's heart and his people. Even as over the last month, we've witnessed in horror what's happening in Afghanistan as we watch the news. Also, two weeks ago in Haiti, there was a devastating earthquake for the second time in just over a decade. And thousands of lives lost, countless homes and and destruction and, and grief and horror. And so the world's responding to these dual humanitarian crises. And that's the way it goes, right? It doesn't happen linearly. Uh, We'll go for a while without a major crisis, and then they'll bunch up at once. But to be God's people is to respond to his heart and the world uh, that he is redeeming and making new. And so I just found myself so grateful to be a part of a church that's as intentional and generous as you all because of your legacy given. Remember, that's in the fall, November every year. We receive together, all of us who choose to give the legacy offering, the point of which is to endow our church family to be able to be generous on every occasion so that when disaster strikes, we can, in real time, provide generous relief and aid. And so we sent a large check last week to an organization that our team went right to work finding that's on the ground, helping people in immediate and practical ways in the name of Jesus. And so thank you all for your generosity and trust in us and one another that we would be endowed that way so that when that happens, we don't have to get together and do a special offering and feel bad about pulling your heartstrings with with people suffering. We've already chosen just to be the people of God and to be able, as Scripture teaches, to be generous in every occasion. That occasion, the crisis in Haiti, was doubly painful because it's so eerily reminiscent of what happened back in 2010. Remember the earthquake that hit near Port-au-Prince and leveled so much of their infrastructure and killed so many people? How can this happen again? The, the devastation and the loss has given way slowly to the relief and recovery and ultimately the redevelopment work as non-governmental organizations and uh, compassionate countries and individuals are gathering around the beleaguered people of Haiti with an eye toward rebuilding. What's interesting in Haiti is as they do the work of rebuilding, it's apparent that their structures and their cities and neighborhoods and communities, they don't not just need to be rebuilt. They may need to be re-engineered. 
And that's what we're going to talk about this morning because the very same thing presented itself to Nehemiah and the people of Israel when they went to begin the rebuilding work after centuries of devastation and ruin. We're in a series called The Rebuilders, and if you have missed some or all of it, you can catch up online at denverunited.com, looking at Nehemiah and his contemporaries as examples, like Scripture teaches in 1 Corinthians 10, and warnings to us who live in this age. And so we're drawing lessons from their rebuilding work. In chapter 8, the text continues in verse 1, all the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. They asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. So on October 8, Ezra, the priest, brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and the women and all the children old enough to understand. He faced the square just inside the water gate, from early morning until noon, and read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. Nehemiah and Ezra the priest realized early on that rebuilding involves not just repairing the damaged structure, but re-engineering the system. Otherwise, we end up just rebuilding on a faulty foundation or according to a bad design. And every one of you who does craftsmanship or construction, you know how long that lasts. If the surface isn't level, plain, or plumb, then those cracks are just going to come back no matter how well you patch them. And so Nehemiah recognized that the system needed re-engineering. It was a qualitative as well as a quantitative rebuild, wasn't it? As people are beginning to dig deeper into the rebuilding work ahead for the people of Haiti in the region where this earthquake hit, they've discovered some things or at least can, uh, are starting to tell the story more broadly. I read an article that pointed out that Haiti over the last 50, 60 years has been making major strides of advancement. Haiti, of course, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere and um, is that way, not because the people lack ingenuity or intelligence or care, but because more than anything, their political system has been so broken and has preyed on the people. It's kept them falling further and further behind. Well, in 2010... When that enormous earthquake hit, the rebuilding work happened with the generosity and care of much of the compassionate developed world. What we discovered in that process, I've learned over the last week of researching this a little bit, is that Haiti was built and rebuilt over the years, like many coastal communities and civilizations, but they rebuilt after it would be leveled or partially um, damaged with an eye not toward earthquakes, but hurricanes. 
Because if you think about it, over the last centuries, there wasn't in Haiti or really much of anywhere in the Western Hemisphere, a lot of development, certainly not high-rise development. So those scary or unsettling, an earthquake wouldn't cause a ton of damage to more primitive structures. But not so a hurricane, right? A hurricane creates tsunamis and they wipe out entire coastal villages. And so the people living there in the Caribbean in the path of hurricanes as well, understandably, sensibly rebuilt with an eye toward hurricane-proofing their houses and neighborhoods. What we're learning now is that that island of it's Espanola or Hispaniola, right, that, that is shared by the two countries of Haiti and, or the country of Haiti and the territory of the Dominican Republic, uh, that island sits on the fault line between the North American and the Caribbean tectonic plates. So it's literally in the crosshairs of earthquakes. That whole island is an earthquake waiting to happen. And so as they're rebuilding in 2010 to now, they're rebuilding with an eye toward re-engineering the system because they've built with masonry over the last 100 years. Masonry is incredibly effective at withstanding hurricanes, but it's horrible with earthquakes. And so that's what's crumbling and collapsing. Now they're beginning to rebuild over the last decade and in this current disaster with an eye toward an engineering solution for both hurricanes and earthquakes. That's what Nehemiah and his people did. They recognized what God said in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. And so they could make the walls and their homes as strong as they could possibly be. But the foundation was faulty if it wasn't built on the promises of God with his covenant community and what he expected of his people. So no sooner had they finished the walls than they gathered the people and read the word of God to them and declared this is the system by which we must rebuild, the qualitative rebuild, if you will, that's a companion to the quantitative one. Jesus addressed this in Matthew chapter seven at the conclusion of his famous Sermon on the Mount. In verse 24, he says, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person build, who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come up and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. And so Jesus makes the case in point that unless we build qualitatively on the promises and requirements of his covenant, the structures aren't worth their weight in concrete. The story continues in chapter nine of Nehemiah. On October 31st, the people assembled again and they confessed their own sins and the sins of their ancestors. Having heard the word of God, it seems that that thing that happens when we read the word of God the conviction, how the Holy Spirit takes it and turns it from paragraphs on a page to life, truth, and conviction in our hearts. You know that? That thing that happens. Sometimes we, if we're honest, don't read the word for a season because we know we're living off 
a, a degree or two from God's design for us. And we don't want that conviction. We don't want that illuminating thing that we know happens after walking with God for a while. But so they read the word of God aloud and it did its thing alive and active as it was even back then. And they confessed their sins in response and the sins of their ancestors. They remained standing in the place where they were for three hours while the book of the law was read aloud to them. Then for three more hours, they confessed their sins and worshiped the Lord their God. And what you see in their example is that re-engineering our hearts starts with acknowledging and then with confessing our sins. It's two sides of the same coin, but the people responded humbly and acknowledged this is what's happened. This is what's gone down, and we, this is how we bear responsibility for it. In verse 33, pick up the story there. We've sinned greatly, and you gave us only what we deserved. Our kings, leaders, priests, and ancestors did not obey your law or listen to the warnings in your commands and laws. Even while they had their own kingdom, they did not serve you, though you showered your goodness on them, and you gave them a large fertile land, but they refused to turn from their wickedness. So now today we are slaves in the land of plenty that you gave our ancestors for their enjoyment. The people acknowledged their sins to themselves and confessed them before God. It's important to note that we're not informing God when we confess our sins. God is not unaware. In fact, he knows us better than ourselves. He knows everything we've ever done. Jesus said he knows the number of hairs on our head. When we're confessing, we're doing it not so much for God, but for us. We're actualizing what is true of ourselves and internalizing it. Confessing our sins is adopting a heart posture of humility, of self-awareness and contrition. It's turning sober-minded and just owning what's always been true. First John chapter one reads, this is the message we heard from Jesus. Now this is John, Jesus's best friend writing. He's saying firsthand toward the end of his life, here's what we heard when we hung out with Jesus and now we declare it to you. God is light and there's no darkness in him at all. So we're lying if we say we have fellowship with God but go on living in spiritual darkness. Ever tried that? Something in you knows that it lacks integrity. We're not practicing the truth, but if we live in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Listen, if we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. It says if we pretend to be without sin, if we claim we got it all going on, we're only deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. We're not deceiving God and we're not deceiving the people around us. We work so hard, we're culturally steeped in it from birth to project this notion that we've got it all together and above all else to hide our wrinkles, our weaknesses, our inadequacies, our mistakes and our failures, right? We do this, we all do it pathologically. We take like 30 photographs of ourselves in order to get one to post that doesn't show our hair with that weird hump. Forgetting that everybody else sees us all the time with the hump. 
But if we can only get one picture where we don't have it, then people will maybe think it's not there. We're not deceiving them. There is nobody in here who believes that you're without sin, especially the person sitting really close to you. Like, I don't need to give my wife and kids a theological discussion of original sin for them to understand that I am a broken human in need of Jesus. They live around me. We're only deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. To pretend we got it all together and keep holding up a facade is to lack integrity. And it says the truth is not in us and God has no part there. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so what does this say? We need to be honest with ourselves. Some of us are trying for a relationship with God while continuing to live in darkness. Like we stand with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. And maybe for a little while, it feels like it works. But have you ever lived that way for any length of time? It's emotionally exhausting because it's kind of like the downfall of like the Bo Jackson cross trainers in 1986. They weren't very good basketball shoes and they weren't very good running shoes. So your feet kind of hurt after both practices. And so they went off the market and we went back to just buying the right shoes for the workout. The problem with living with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom is we sort of, if we're honest, suck at worldliness. So we're no fun for our sinners. And even when we pretend like we are with our sinner friends, we aren't having fun. Has anyone, just let's be honest, tried to live that foot for a minute and you're like, why is this not fun? Even if I can convince them that I'm holy this, I'm not able to enjoy it. Like I, I struggle for quality sinning. I mean, I can sin, I can do the full sin, but I don't get the benefit out of it. I don't like enjoy it because I feel convicted. I feel guilty. I feel like this isn't even, not only is this not right, like theoretically or esoterically, I do not want to be doing this. I'm like, Paul, the thing I'm doing, I don't want to be doing. And the thing I want to be doing, I'm not doing. Ah, that's how I end up feeling. Can you relate to this? And then when we live with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom and we come to church and people are like, Lord, I'm amazed. And you're like, and they're all in your head, right? So we're not very good at following Jesus. We're not very good at following the world and just we get bound up in our head. And so we endlessly retake the selfie and try to post it and convince the world, really convincing ourselves that we got it all together. God's call is for integrity. He says, it's okay. I mean, it's not okay, but I accept. I love you as you are, knowing that you are a sinner. So let's just be honest about it. Man, maybe we've stopped talking about this in church because it's unpopular and we've kind of yielded to culture because we don't want people to leave our church and go to another church. Go to whatever church you want to. Just be honest, intellectually honest. So let me ask you, what area of your life are you keeping in the dark? What's that room? What's in that room that, you know, like you go down the hallway of your heart and you got Jesus into this room and in this room, but in this room, 
you keep the door closed and you don't invite him in there. What's in that room? It starts by acknowledging and then by simply confessing. Perhaps it's a relationship. Maybe it's money that's in that final room and I can't surrender that. I didn't have it growing up and now that I got it, can't pry my kung fu grip off of it, you know, that. Maybe it's your sexuality. It got broken early and now it's beyond repair. And so you just keep that thing shut up in that final room. Maybe it's your ambition or your insecurity or the bitterness that resolved and set in after the rejection and heartache of how badly mistreated you were. What's in that room? The end of the chapter in verse 38, Nehemiah and the priest Ezra read the word of God to the people and they responded in view of all this after confessing, we are making a solemn promise. So chapter 10 goes on to detail the terms of the promise and concludes for the sake of time in verse 29, they solemnly promised to carefully follow all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord. So see this re-engineering work? It began by choosing a new foundation, by rethinking the qualitative system behind the quantitative reconstruction. And then it went to being honest, acknowledging and confessing. And then it culminates here in repentance. And repentance is not just owning our sin, but turning from it. Repentance is a decision, right? Repentance is choosing a new direction. In the book of Hosea, the prophet for God says to the people, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for your sins have brought you down. Bring your confessions and then return to the Lord. See, there are two different things. Bring your confessions and then return. Say to him, forgive all our sins and graciously receive us so that we may offer you our praises. Repentance isn't the confession. Sometimes those words mistakenly are understood interchangeably. Repentance is the response to the confession. It's choosing a new direction. Remember Billy Graham's old story, his anecdote of being in a movie house? He taught this every single Billy Graham crusade. And someone comes rushing in and says, the place is on fire. And you're like, okay, I believe you. And you keep on watching the movie. The confession in an intellectually honest framework has to be followed with commensurate action. The repentance is choosing to get up and walk out. It's choosing to turn from our life of sin and by God's grace, chart a new course and trust that he who began this good work in me in calling me to repentance is faithful to lead me according to good plans for my life, that I'm not too far gone, that you are not a hopeless cause, that you're not an accident or a mistake. You're not an irretrievable disaster. you're a daughter and a son of God and that in repentance 
You're not saying, I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to get it wrong. I'm only going to get it right. You're saying, I'm going to trust you who forgave me that you're as powerful as you say you are, that you're powerful enough not just to wash me clean and give me a fresh start, but to lead me in new plans, to redeem my life and make everything new. That's what Jesus does. And that's what baptism signifies, doesn't it? That's what we celebrate today. I love baptism, having gotten baptized many, many years ago, even now, because it's like a jolt of faith for me. It's a re-infusion of faith because what somebody's going to say here in just a moment is, I have chosen a new direction. I trust Jesus. And when we go under the waters of baptism, metaphorically, we're saying, I'm turning from my old life. I'm dying to that. And by faith in Jesus, we come out of the waters and say, I'm coming alive to Christ. The word of God says, in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. Everything is being made new. So baptism is very literally an outward demonstration of an inward transformation. And that's what we're celebrating today. It's new life in Christ for these, our brothers who are being baptized. It's new life in Christ for every one of us who simply says yes. The problem is the older we get, the harder that simple surrender, that confession of faith becomes. We want it to cost us more. We want it to be something that's meaty and weighty and we do something to earn it. We don't want it flimsy and free. And so we think though, I can't do that. I don't have time right now. Or I really got to put the work in. Next year, once I get over that hump at work, once we get through COVID fully, whatever, then I'll really dig in and figure out my spiritual life. But so we keep saying that and that day never comes. The fact is when we dig in, we can't dig in deep enough. We can't hold on tight enough. We can't do it for ourselves. Jesus did it for us. And all he asks is that we simply receive. We receive that gift that he gave us that we couldn't give ourselves. That act of service that he did for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. I love what it says in the first John passage. If we confess our sins, what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. How is that justice? How is that faithfulness? If anything, man, he's a really nice guy. If he's just letting me off the hook, that doesn't feel like justice. It is, and here's why. Jesus Christ died on a cross, paid the price for every sin, every expression of brokenness that you and I have ever lived out and ever will. And so God is demonstrating himself integrity, the same wholeness, the same integrity he asks us to live in, the same intellectual honesty. Jesus Christ paid the price, it is paid. If you are set free by the son of God, you are free indeed. Wouldn't be a very good savior if he set you free only to keep holding it over your head or keep you on the hook. You ever been in a relationship with someone that does that? You say you're sorry and they say they forgive you, but then they keep dangling it over you to keep you under their thumb. Jesus didn't like that. He sets us free and says, this is why you were created. To be a son and a daughter of God. And in Romans 2, we'll wrap it up here. It says, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Some of us have experienced God in the context or learned him in the context of a church experience that presents God as anything but kind. 
but as cruel and as vindictive and is waiting to smack us or angry or exasperated. And that if we come to him in repentance, we got to come groveling on our hands and knees. But that's not your heavenly father. That's a lie. If you're going to come to God, come to the God who is there. Jesus Christ revealed him. He told a simple story about a father that had two sons. One walked the straight and narrow. The other squandered all the opportunity and privilege that was given to him. So much so that he took his inheritance, disowned the family, and spent it on wild living. Until he woke up invariably at rock bottom. Came to his senses and realized... I'm sleeping with pigs. My father's servants live better than this. I'm gonna come back on my hands and knees, grovel and beg, and maybe he'll take me back. And so the whole road home, this son is preparing his groveling speech. He sees his father. His father comes running out to the road. I can imagine the son thinks, oh man, am I gonna get it? He's hot. My dad's running. He doesn't run that much at this age. And he gets there and the son's like, doesn't even look at him. So he doesn't see his dad's face lit up with joy. His eyes are downcast. And he starts into his prepared speech of groveling. His dad doesn't even let him get the words out before he says, come here, you. And he wraps him up in a hug and he gets him clean clothes so he doesn't smell like a pig. And he throws a party for him. And he says, clearly what you've been through, the natural consequences, eating pig fodder, you've gotten beat up enough. Come on home. This is how your heavenly father looks at you. He says, daughter, son, you can come on home. And that's what we celebrate in baptism. But God forbid we cheer for those who have made this decision for themselves without opening the door wide and saying, every one of us who hears his voice today, you can come on in. Some of us, we need to come home. Some of us, we need a fresh start. So what did we read today? This is as simple and straightforward a message as you'll ever hear. Nehemiah's message to us across the millennia is simple. Let God's word penetrate our hearts and then acknowledge our sin to ourselves. The other side of that coin, confess it to God. And the action step, repent. Turn a new new direction, chart a different course and believe that it is God who called you, who redeemed you, and it is God who is gonna make you new. Would you stand with me? We're gonna pray just together for a moment. The band's gonna play, we're gonna celebrate, and then um, we will cheer on as some of our family publicly profess their faith and join the family of God. If you would, please just take a moment. Let's quiet our hearts. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I'm not into high pressure or like goosebump moments at the end of church services. I am into the love of God. God loves you so much. You're like, yeah, but you don't know all I've done. No, but he does. And I know this, there's nothing you have done that he doesn't know, that he doesn't love you through, and that Jesus has not paid for if you will receive it. So I wanna ask you, what's behind that door? Maybe you got a bunch of doors. You're like, man, I got a whole floor. Just pick one for right now. What's in that room? 
What have you kept from Jesus? What's held you hostage such that you're trying to live with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God and you wake up and find yourself divided and stressed and miserable? Would you do this? Would you take out your phone? We've all got our phone with us. Andrew, would you hand me my phone? It's right there. We're gonna do this together. I love how Pastor Daniel led us in prayer that was participatory. Prayer isn't listening to the pastors pray. All of us have the same Holy Spirit. We all have the red phone to heaven. This is you and Jesus. Would you do this? Would you open up a note or whatever that's called in the non-Apple operating system? Open up one of those. Just a new one. And now, just with your eyes closed for just a minute, just ask God, what's, what am I holding back? What am I trying to manage myself? What am I saying, I got this? What legitimate need am I trying to meet in an illegitimate way? What door am I shutting to Jesus? Would you just write it? Just type it in, in this note. Don't look at the person next to you's phone. That's super awkward. Just look at yours. I know, wives, you want to like peek at your husbands. Don't do it. Husbands, you can do this. Just kidding. Just write it down. Now turn it off. What you just did is acknowledge it. When you put it in writing and you look at the words, you're coming face to face with the reality that God and I promise your spouse or your girlfriend already knows. You live in a house full of roommates, I guarantee you they know. Just being honest with ourselves. Now, would you confess that to God? It's not that scary. He's a good father. God, I confess I'm a sinner. What I just wrote down, that. Just, I just own it. And now repentance. Repentance is simply a turning. If you would, in your hearts, just say, God, I turn. I don't know how to get there, but I choose a new direction. I don't even totally know where I'm going, but I choose to trust you. Thank you for believing in me enough to die for me, to redeem me, and to lead me thank you that you are making all things new. Would you make me new? Man, some of us, um, some of us, it's time to come home. Time to come home to Jesus. Time to stop running. Some of us, we've been there, but it's been a long time. Or we've been living with half our hearts. And it's exhausting. This morning, you can come home if you want. So we're going to worship together. Just checking with God. We're going to celebrate baptism. And there's room for you if you want to make that declaration of faith public. If you want to recommit to following Jesus, 
Or if you want to make that decision for the very first time, you're welcome. Just come up and find me or Pastor Neil right up here. Oh, yeah. And you get this handsome shirt that says, I have decided. And um, there's nothing magical about the water or the shirt or the prayer that Pastor Daniel will pray. It's your faith. But if you take this step of faith, Jesus will meet you and we, your family, will be right here to celebrate with you. And you get this handsome parting gift. (laughs) All right. Hey, love you all. Let's worship together. You guys ready to worship? You guys ready to worship? All right, let's do it. Church family, listen to this beautiful picture that Jesus gives us. It says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the, the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And then look what he does. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and his neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. Isn't that amazing? And in a a similar fashion, that's what we're doing this morning. We are coming around the individuals that were lost and now they're found. We're gathering the friends, we're gathering the neighbors, and we're joining with heaven to declare um, this moment of salvation. Isn't that amazing? And so this isn't just, uh, you know, them up here doing this thing. It's us collectively celebrating. So here's what I want to invite you to do. One, to be engaged, to celebrate with them. If, if you want to get out of your chair and you want to come stand over here or over there, we'd love to have you. But if you want to stay in your chair, then cheer and let's champion on these individuals because this is a huge decision. Amen? Amen. All right, this is Noah Alvarez. Noah, how are you doing today? Let's give it up for Noah. Is that water very cold? Yeah, a little cold. It's a little colder in second service. This is what Noah said. said, my dad taught me about Jesus growing up. Way to go, dad. (laughs) Going to church taught me more about Jesus in my Christian school. I would watch Superbook with my dad and learned more about Jesus and the cross and believing that Jesus died for my sins. When I was seven, I was watching Superbook with my dad, and we were watching about Paul and how he was doing bad things, but Jesus turned him into a good person and he wanted to get baptized. And I went to my dad and I said, I want to be baptized. And I talked with my dad and Pastor Rob about it at Bonnie Bray Ice Cream. And now I'm finally able to get baptized. That's awesome, Noah. All right, Noah, I have known you your whole life. I am so excited for you and so proud of you. Noah Alvarez, do you trust Jesus as your Savior and your Lord? And do you believe that he is all you need to live forever with God? Okay. Grab your nose like that. Jonathan. Noah, your father and I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Church, we have Reese here. Let's give it up for Reese. Woo! 
Reese says this, he says, I want to be baptized so everyone can know I have decided to follow Jesus. That's awesome, Reese. We're excited to celebrate with you. You ready? All right. All right, Reese, have you confessed that Jesus is Lord of your life? And do you believe that he rose from the dead and has conquered the power of sin? All right. You want to go ahead and hold your nose? All right. We baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. We have Tiana here. Let's give it up for Tiana. I said, Tiana, are you ready? And she like bolted to the, the baptism. She's ready to get baptized today. This is what she says. I want to be baptized to follow Jesus and to be baptized because he loves me so much. And he makes me new and a better person. Amen. We believe that. All right, Tiana, have you decided to follow Jesus? and you confess him as your Lord and Savior, and that he died and rose again for your sins? All right, can you go ahead and there you go, your arms. Tiana, me and your dad, we baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's give it up for Aaron. Woo! Aaron serves in our kids' ministry as an amazing leader here and recently married. Congratulations. Aaron said this, although I grew up in church, I didn't make a conscious decision to follow Jesus until, I was, until about two years ago. I was already, uh, I was astray for about a decade of my young adult life. And I am so grateful that he continued pursuing me. I was fighting a battle with anxiety. And now my husband simply offered God's word to me. Matthew 6, 28, meet me exactly where I was and expose what I needed in my life, Jesus. Jesus' grace and mercy are something that I need every day. And I am excited to publicly announce my dedication to him and to my DU family. of faith, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so if you're in the house today and you made a decision for Christ, this is your last chance. If you want to get up here and get baptized right now, anyone? The water's still warm. All right, well, if you didn't make that decision, we would love to hear from you and walk alongside you in that decision of faith in your life. Let me tell you something that's important that's happening right now in this room right over here. After they get baptized, they go back over here and our elders lay on hands and they pray for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And this is why this is important today. Many of you sense the Holy Spirit calling you to confess your sins, to repent 
and to turn a new course. And this is the thing about repentance, that we can try in all of our effort to, to try to walk differently and live differently, but if it's not for the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we will fail. It is only Him working in us that gives us the ability to live and walk with Jesus. And so this is my prayer today, that if you made that decision to confess that sin and to, to repent, that as you leave here, that God's grace through the power of His Holy Spirit working in your life will give you the ability to continue to walk in righteousness and freedom in your life. That's my prayer over you today. So I'm just gonna pray that, Lord Jesus, we repent and we confess today. We know we are broken individuals and we know that we're going to fall again, but we know that your grace is faithful to meet us and to forgive us. And Lord, this morning, I ask that as we leave, that we would leave with confidence, not in ourselves, but in the power of the Holy Spirit in us, to walk in righteousness, to walk with you, and to be your hands and feet to this world. And so I pray over the church that you would fill them up with the Holy Spirit, and that Lord, that they would have the power to walk in freedom and righteousness, in your name we pray, amen, amen. All right, church, before you go, we got one more baptism. Let's give it up. Woo! What's your name? Holly. Holly, why have you made this decision to follow Christ this morning? Um, I just feel like I've been, you know, trying to pursue God my whole life, and I always fall back on my own. Efforts that I feel like I just want to make a public declaration to truly trust in Him in everything I do. That's amazing, Holly. Holly, let's step right up here. Let's give it up for Holly. do you trust Jesus as your Savior and your Lord? And do you look to Him alone to give you eternal life with God? And do you believe that by His death on the cross that you are forgiven of your sins? All right. Grab your nose. Yes, there we go. What's your last name? Oh, it's Maddox, right? Okay. Holly Maddox, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. See you guys next week. Have a great week. We love you guys. Have a great rest of your week. We hope you've been encouraged this week. For more information or to submit a prayer request, go to denverunited.com.